eating disorders affect everyone, regardless of race, age, socioeconomic class, and that the space has begun to even just acknowledge that is going to fundamentally change and save lives because it means that so many people who have been ignored are finally going to be seen. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Equip to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is so worth it. I'm Christina Safran, and today I'm so excited to be joined by Ben O'Keefe, a creative director, social change activist, and someone I've been proud to call a co-conspirator and friend for the past 15 years. Ben is a thought leader known for his transformative work in culture, politics, entertainment, and eating disorders and body image. He spearheaded many campaigns for social and political activism, including in 2013 when he started a petition to hold retailer Abercrombie & Fitch account for discrimination against plus size and BIPOC customers. Ben is considered an early trailblazer in the body positivity movement, and he's featured uh, in the Netflix documentary White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. Go watch it now. And Ben continues to advise and influence many leaders, celebrities, and brands in social activism and change. He has lived experience with recovering from an eating disorder and now sits on the board of Project Heal. Ben is a true leader who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk in creating social justice and change. I'm so excited for you to listen in as Ben and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Ben. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's always a little awkward to hear your bio because I also want to be like, Ben is going to take a nap after this. Ben <laughs> loves 90 Day Fiance. Um, not all cool stuff, you know. <laughs> well, this should be a fun conversation. I mean, God, it's so incredible that we've known each other for 15 years and the change that you have made in this space has been just overwhelming and so inspiring. I want to start at the beginning, though. Let's talk about, you know, what was your experience coming to the realization that you had an eating disorder and your journey to recovery? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I didn't have sort of what some might call a traditional experience. I grew up in Orlando, Florida. I grew up in poverty. I always say like we were actually poor, not like, oh man, we can't get that PlayStation poor, but like our fridge broke. And so we used a cooler for months until we could get it fixed kind of poor. And so as many people know, for so long, until we've had more resources like Equip, we've seen treatment access be very difficult because of the cost associated with it, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so for me, there was no doctor diagnosing me. You know, there was no treatment. There was no opportunity. And that was coupled with the fact that I was Black. Uh, in a male body and in a large body. And so no one really cared that all of a sudden I was starting to lose a drastic amount of weight. When I really started to realize an eating disorder was occurring in my life was in high school. You know, obviously there's all these pressures to fit in as a young person. And I really felt those pressures. And I was a big kid and it, you know, it, what, it was okay. And I didn't realize that, but I thought, I needed to change. So I thought, well, I just won't eat. Like if I don't eat, I won't gain weight. Why has no one ever thought of this before? I thought I was coming up with this super original idea. But what started as this 
conscious decision blossomed into something that was no longer in my control. Um, it was becoming something that was really all-consuming in my life and was taking me to a place where despite having beginning to have the body that society told me I should have had in the first place, I was actually killing myself in the process. And so the discovery was something that was gradual and for me took really seeking out resources and trying to understand what was happening with me. And I'm very, very thankful and lucky that I was able to get to this place of recovery today because the system was stacked against me like it is for so many marginalized people. Did you ever get any formal treatment or did you work your way out of it alone? What was that process? (laughs) I didn't ever get any formal treatment. And I will say for those listening, that is not something I necessarily recommend. Um, It certainly was not a choice. It was uh, more of a circumstance. And what I've had, what I found is that even though I really had gotten to a better place through the support of friends and family has started to work through and find recovery sort of how Equips Family-Based Therapy is is able to support folks dealing with disordered eating. I, I still needed tools and resources and coping mechanisms and all of these things that treatment would have helped provide for me. And so now as an adult, as someone who has helped lead the body positivity movement to where we are, someone who helps so many others, I still have had work to do to help myself and to get those resources, you know, find therapists, find people who I'm very fortunate to happen to know many of the biggest players in this space. So I definitely have access to resources these days, but I never had that formal treatment setting opportunity. And so for me, it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate. You know, you founded Project Heal, and I'm now on the board of Project Heal, a longtime friend. It was so important for me to be involved because I realized just how critical treatment is and just how scarce it is as well. And not everyone is, is like me. Not everyone would have necessarily had the innate skills, potentially because of other things that I've overcome, to overcome this. And so whatever we can do to break down those barriers to access is so important. And it's really become a a big mission of mine. A hundred percent. And it's hard enough with the access to the best resources. Like treatment is really friggin' hard, no matter what. Do it all on your own without that support is so challenging. And, you know, I think a lot of people relate with getting bits and pieces of it, you know, in whether it's formal or informal at the beginning, but then also, you know, we enter into this world that is so effed up around diet culture and fat phobia and all of these harmful things that, of course, you need to continue to develop coping skills and ways to fight back against society and, you know, build your community. And I'm curious for you, how do you define your recovery now? I think there's been an ongoing debate in the field on full recovery period versus in a strong and active recovery. And I think certainly, you know, as someone in a self-described large body in this society that is so awful to large bodies and messed up, like, how do you view recovery? And how do you view yourself staying in a strong and active recovery? I think it's really important when we discuss recovery to not fall into those same perfectionistic tendencies that actually contribute to many folks who do experience eating disorders. We know there are many folks who are more of what we call the type A folks um, who do experience eating disorders. And so I think we can see that in recovery sometimes. And unfortunately, we see it perpetuated in some of the less successful treatment options that are out there. 
And so for me, I know that recovery is a road. It's a road I'm going to walk for the rest of my life. But also learning to love yourself and your body is a journey for everyone, not just people who have experienced disordered eating. And what does that even really mean in a society that teaches people that disordered eating is the way to go? There's a lot of nuance when we talk about eating disorders and the types of eating disorders. But in reality, just about every person in this country on a daily basis is faced with narratives that are perpetuating the types of behaviors that uh, eating disorders represent. You know, it's hard to avoid hearing about Ozempic these days or about Munjar or about all these other thin is in type trends. And even for me, that can be difficult sometimes. And that's why we have to be honest and say that recovery is a journey. It's not about never feeling bad or never feeling a tendency to make a bad choice for yourself because of what society is thinking. It's about having the tools and the resources to stop and examine and acknowledge the conditions that are causing you to feel this way. Fat phobia is ingrained in our society. White supremacy is what our society is built on. And therefore, many of our beauty standards are set off of white Eurocentric beauty standards that are unobtainable for many people. Um, Diet culture that tells people that they should restrict that they should feel guilt and shame around the food that they eat, that they shouldn't eat intuitively and instead they should eat according to a manual that they pay a ridiculous amount of money to subscribe to. These are all things that are very real in everyone's life. And so to say like, oh, are you recovered? Isn't fair. And it isn't acknowledging the pressures and the struggles that still exist. And it's also permission to not be perfect. It's permission to learn to love yourself, to dismantle the fat phobia that is so intrinsic in our lives. And so I really think of my recovery journey as a day by day. And there are times when it's easy and there are times when it's hard, but it's always worth it. You know, recently I participated in a group that Equip Health puts on, a community group, and I was in a group of fellow leaders in this space. And I'll respect the space and not get too much into detail. But what was so remarkable is that the people that folks look to still have struggles themselves, still deal with imposter syndrome. In fact, many of the most successful people that I know, world leaders, celebrities still struggle with these external pressures. And does that suck? Yeah, it sucks because it shows us that we still have a long way to go. But to me, I take it as a bit of liberation in knowing that we're all on this journey together. And if we can remember that, build community, have discussions, find that commonality and work through things together, that's ultimately how we are going to to get to a place where we feel that we are recovering every day. And I think for both of us, especially like becoming recovery role models as teenagers, mm-hmm. like it's a really high bar to put on people. And the way when I look back on it now, I'm like, of course, like you have ups and downs in your life. We enter into this world that is yelling everything at us that the eating disorder used to yell at us. And also our bodies should be changing, right? Continuing to grow and continuing to develop those skills. And so I I feel similarly to you in that recovery. I come to see it much more as an evolving and ongoing journey. And, you know, much in the same way that like, I've always known that I'm always going to have to deal with 
my anxiety and manage it. And it's like, you know, I, I do manage it, but I'm cognizant of it. I'm aware of it. And I think until our society, we're actively working every single day to get society to a place that allows, you know, people to grow up safe and at home in their bodies, but we have a long way to go. And until that, viewing it as, you know, an active practice is actually honest and sort of healing to people and allows people to be honest. And I agree with you. It was so refreshing to hear people say like, well, yeah, of course, like the jeans that I had five years ago, like don't fit me at all anymore. And you know what? My first thought is like, oh, that sucks. But I think we all identified, you know, your first thought doesn't actually matter. It's the second thought and the third thought. Mm-hmm. Whereas before we used to be like, okay, that's going to lead me into eating disorder behaviors. Now we're like, fuck it. I, you know, my jeans don't fit and I have a much bigger life. So like, good thing they don't fit. Yeah. And and, and you know, what's funny for me recently, I have experienced a change in my body sort of in the other direction and have lost body mass, just not intentionally. It's just happened. And when I realized that I was recovered was that I wasn't excited. I wasn't like, oh, maybe I should do more of what I was doing. I'm just like, well, this is my body today. We'll see what it's like tomorrow. And that, it, and, and, and to, one more thing is that you, you talked about something that came up in that group that you're a part of. And it was that like, we can't control our first thought, but we can control our second thought. We can control how we react to that first thought. And that is such a liberating mindset. And it's to give ourselves grace and acknowledging that those first thoughts come sometimes from a place of our unconscious mind that we literally have no control over, but we do have control over how we choose to, to stop, to listen and to respond to that first thought. And that's all that I ask of anyone is to, is to give yourself that time to examine the truth and then also the falsehoods that exist in our innate responses to things. I love that. What do you think is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? <laughs> That's, I, I love that you asked that question because I always say like, you know, my whole career comes from the fact that I decided to tell my story. I found this quote from the CEO of Abercrombie and Fitch. It was seven years old. And he basically said he didn't want plus size and BIPOC people wearing his clothing. And I remember thinking, why has no one done something about this? And it was a liberating moment when I realized, wait, I'm someone. I have the power to do something about this. And so in thinking that I was helping to heal others by fighting for body positivity and for fighting for equality and equity and fashion and all the spaces that I've worked in, what I was actually doing was to heal myself. And so I always say when you survive, you have a responsibility to help other people survive and to thrive as well. And I think you'll probably resemble this. My eating disorder became the driving force behind my passion and my mission in life. And that I have found success, professional success, personal success in helping others and seeing the value and realizing that they help me in the process has probably been the best thing to come out of my eating disorder. I wish it didn't happen, but in some ways I'm glad it did because it now has given me the knowledge, the empathy, and the tools to help fight to dismantle this on a much larger scale than I probably ever could have imagined. Yeah, the activism being so healing. And, you know, I describe it sometimes as like a healthy pressure to stay well. Like now I'm a role model. Yeah. 
other people too. And this community that it enters us into like is so incredibly powerful. And we talk about how important that community of like-minded activists is when you swim in the sea of diet culture, having your, your group of folks who's like, F that, and this is not what is going to bring you long-term health and happiness. It just, it makes it easier. Yeah, that accountability, and we support each other, and we hold each other accountable. We've done it for each other many times, and that is such a gift. Healed, recovering people are, are special people because they have been through something very, very profound and difficult, and they've come out on the other side. And so you have the perspective of looking back and you have the excitement of looking forward. They're just the most amazing people. Like truly, eat, people who recover from eating disorders are the most amazing humans. <laughs> well, it's like you unlock this, this secret where it's like, wait, I don't have to hate myself. I don't have to subscribe to these things that society has told me. I'm free. You all are still stuck. Um, it is great. We're we're pretty great. What can I say? <laughs> so you talked a little bit about how this movement against Abercrombie came to be, but share more because it really took on a life of its own, culminating in this incredible Netflix documentary. Like, what was that like to stand up? And did you expect the journey that you would take with it? Uh, it's still a little surreal to look back all these years later. The fact that a Netflix film came out last year about it is is wild, but it started because I realized the power of my story and I decided to get it out there. I had nothing. I had nothing. I was sitting in bed one night at three o'clock in the morning and I read something and I decided to take action. All I had was my story and I shared it and it was hard being on Good Morning America and the Today Show talking about an eating disorder as myself in a male body, uh, as a person of, of size, I flew to New York. I had never been on an airplane before, right? My whole life changed. And the next year I was on 46 airplanes and I was speaking at the board of, you know, to the board of major companies and at universities and all over the place. And it really showed me this was a time before the Parkland kids and Malala and all, I always, Malala stole my, uh, I was the youngest person ever to write an op-ed for The Guardian when I when the Abercrombie campaign came out until Malala had to come and screw it all up. Oh, no, I, Malala. I love Malala. Malala. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm the only people besides the Taliban that have something negative to say. Um, no, I, <laughs> I love Malala, but you know, it showed me that I mattered, that I was powerful, that, one story can influence millions of stories. And so I think it's so important to have conversations, vulnerable, authentic conversations about our struggles. And I still try to do that today. You know, I, I don't pretend that I'm perfect. I acknowledge and celebrate that I'm not. And that came from this incredible response that I received when I, I stood up and did something, you know, this it's wild. It was one of the first big change.org petitions. And now change.org is so synonymous with these big movements. And, you know, it, it, it's wild that I was, I was a teenager and I did something incredible. And it just is a great reminder that it doesn't matter who you are, or where you come from, you can make change. You can decide to and, and you can have nothing but you always have your story you always have your lived experiences and by sharing those 
we can really sometimes even change the world and but even changing one life is 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 changing the world and i think that's important too we don't all have to move lead movements to matter the the movement you lead in a conversation with a loved one that is courageous and challenging um a person shared in that group i talked about an experience with a family member and some really disgustingly negative things that family member would say about them and to hear how the conversations that we had together as a group had fundamentally changed their perspective and it made them write a letter to that family member and say they would never accept that again that's what our activism does it it inspires so much more and over the last more than 10 years i've received so many messages from people who have appreciated what i did and it just reminds me that like i could have stayed silent and i'm in but nothing changes when we stay silent and eating disorders affect millions of people disordered eating affects millions more and until we start having these conversations these vulnerable courageous conversations it will continue and so i'm going to keep raising my voice but i'm also going to use the platform i've been lucky to build as a megaphone for others and i think that's uh what it's really come out of that movement for me yeah, secrets keep us sick and sharing our stories can truly heal heal the world and and really heal one person at a time. So that's been a decade, crazy to think about. How has the body positivity landscape changed since then and what excites you and what makes you nervous? It has changed so much for the better, right? We were not even having these conversations. Brands were not making plus sizes. They were actively discussing how they didn't want plus size people wearing their clothing. You know, body positivity, body liberation, these concepts have been explored so much more deeply. And there are so many people who, quite frankly, do better work than I have ever done and more than I will ever do. It's it's exploded and that's phenomenal. But it's not there yet. You know, 70% of people in this country are considered plus size, whatever that really means. And yet 20% of apparel is made in plus sizes. And yet we continue to see discrimination. We continue to see billions of dollars invested into diet culture. And we even see some of our fat icons of the day feel the pressure to be in thin bodies. And what that does is it perpetuates the need for an eating disorder. I talked a little bit about Ozempic earlier. Ozempic is literally a medically described eating disorder. It is meant to, to get you to restrict, restrict to a point of losing weight incredibly quickly at an unsafe rate. And it's being celebrated. And you can't find it in the, in the pharmacies because it's, it's sold out. And so we had, you know... Uh, these new, this new guidance coming out saying we should be giving kids bariatric surgery. And, and the sad thing is a lot of people agree with that. And what that does is it makes people hate themselves and it makes people feel they have to make changes. And unfortunately, it can all often lead to disordered eating and eating disorders. And, and all too often, it can lead to death or, or, or at least an immense amount of struggle. And so it's great to celebrate our accomplishments. But we can't celebrate them to the point of ignoring the work that's still to be done. You know, I look at Equip. When you started Equip, I just, I didn't even know if it would ha work. You know, I believed in you, of course, because you've always shown me that you're worth believing in. But I said, would anyone really care? 
you know, would anyone be willing to admit this? Would people really look at this service and say, I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to be, we're going to allow this at our insurance company and look where we are. And I think that's a testament to the conversations and to the progress that's happening. So we are seeing great resources. I want to continue to see those resources. I, I've recently been working on a project for people in larger bodies and it's, it's been a bit demoralizing because some of the things that people have said have reminded me at the societal level how much disdain still exists for fatness. And I believe at the core of most eating disorders is fat phobia. And it's this fear of being in a body that actually looks like mine. And so until that's broken down, until we learn to love ourselves, until we realize that people have different bodies, people's bodies change and that's okay, we're not going to get there yet. And so I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm inspired. The Lizzo's of the world are showing us that, that a time is changing, uh, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah. And it, it seems to, I mean, it's so mirrored in the current political movements. You take kind of, you know, five steps forward and then four steps back sort of thing. Um, and, and I think that speaks to people's fear, right? Like, how much have movements like body positivity, body neutrality, fat acceptance moved? Um, and frankly, you have the Society for Adolescent Medicine four or five years ago saying, like, people exist, kids exist in, you know, all shapes and sizes. And we know that dieting is a huge predictor of eating disorders, only for the pendulum to swing and start prescribing bariatric surgery. And so I think we're always probably going to have these movements when, you know, the advocates get more traction, and we get more people fighting against us. But hopefully it just continues to reinvigorate us to continue to share our stories and continue to fight. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about how it's data plus stories. And I think we're at a really exciting time now where we can really start to marry both of those things, given, you know, the internet and the rise of social media. And just the increase of research, right? Like, you know, such just having the data is so spectacular. Um, and one other thing I just I just want to quickly name there as well. How do I say this best? I guess it's just like, what I've really realized is that the we have to acknowledge the reason that people are trying to pull back this progress. And the reason that people want you to hate yourself is because when you don't, you're, you're more powerful. And when you're more powerful, you can use that power to help lift and empower others. And when you empower others, we build movements. In, in, and when we build movements, we create change. And when we create change, we level the playing field. And so I think we have to acknowledge that money and power play a large role in why people want to keep us sick. And, you know, I know for someone like you, it's like, you would love to see your business become obsolete one day. And, and the diet culture would not like to see that. And so I just want to remind people, when they see this pushback, it's because we're winning, and they know what's possible when we win. So don't give up, keep fighting, because we should we know that there's something for them to be scared of and what they fear is what we should um, find excitement in. So I love that. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and that's such a great, you know, framework to put on it of like, they're scared. Like this is the pushback. They are scared because we are coming. The eating disorder field has also changed a lot since we became advocates in the late 2000s. What about there? What progress have you, have you seen made that's exciting to you and, and where are we still falling short? Yeah. You know, I'll say the biggest, piece of progress that I've noticed across the entire space 
is an acknowledgement that the stereotypical person affected by an eating disorder, a young, uh, thin white woman, well valid is only one piece of the pie. It's only one tiny part of the puzzle. And eating disorders affect everyone, regardless of race, age, socioeconomic class, and that the space has begun to even just acknowledge that is going to fundamentally change and save lives, because it means that so many people who have been ignored are finally going to be seen. I think we've seen an increase in culturally competent care, folks who have the lived experience and knowledge to bring that into the care that these folks are receiving. And then there's still a long way to go in that, right? Um, In the work that we do at Project HEAL, one thing we're really excited about is how we start to build a pipeline for diverse BIPOC therapists who are trained in treating eating disorders. That gives me hope because we need to start seeing everyone who this touches. And we need to, and and there's not going to be one approach that is right for everyone. It has to be catered to the person and to their community and to their support system. And so seeing that, and then also, you know, not just to continually gush on you, but like, you know, the access to care where you are, meeting people where they are sometimes literally means meeting people where they are. And the fact that you can create a system of care that allows people to have the comfort and safety of their home the power and support of their community, but then the evidence-based treatment that allows them to heal is really exciting to me as well. Because the truth is there are far too few folks who know how to treat eating disorders. There are far too few treatment centers and they're far too expensive. So having these additional resources that are going to allow us to really scale what we're able to do really gives me hope. And then to see also finally insurance companies starting to make a big, big change. And I've really admired the relationship that you've built with a number of major insurance companies who for many, many years denied coverage for folks who didn't fully see the value of this work and who didn't understand the life-saving support that treatment can provide, starting to finally bring these things into, you know, in-network coverage that is inspiring because we know that treatment works. Not every treatment works for everyone. And your first try might not always be your final try, but we know that some treatment is better than none. And so leveling the playing fields and making that accessible is so exciting. And then the fact that we're doing it in a way that acknowledges the lived experiences and the diversities of people who have eating disorders means we're making progress. We're moving in the right direction. Last thing I'll say is that the one place where we need to see more support is financially. Eating disorder nonprofits are so grossly underfunded. Um, The amount of money that some nonprofits spend on a gala, all the eating disorder nonprofits combined make in a year. That has to annually $10 million annually across all of the major eating disorder nonprofits. What that correlates to me is a lack of people realizing the importance of investing in this and how it touches them. And that's why it's important to have conversations with your loved ones, conversations with your friends and families. So they start to have a better consciousness about this. One of the reasons why people don't talk about this more is because there's so much shame and stigma around it, but there shouldn't be shame. This is not your fault. There are many things at play from genetics to society, but at its core, 
eating disorder behaviors are what people are, are pushed to on a normal basis, on a daily basis. And so we need to remove the shame and instead move with vulnerability and give ourselves grace to acknowledge that this is a real thing that many people battle, but if we fight together, we can win that battle. How do we best help people who are struggling with eating disorders who don't fit that stereotypical mold? Uh, We know that it is so hard, a core part of an eating disorder is not knowing how sick you are, not wanting to get better, you know, if you fit the mold to a T. And so if you don't fit that mold, it is just, it sometimes feels like an uphill battle. And, you know, how do we best approach loved ones on an individual level as a field? How do we reach out to communities that have been left out of the conversation for far too long? I think it first starts with education. I often say ignorance by its very definition is a lack of knowledge. So the only way we break down our own ignorance and the ignorance of others is by educating ourselves. So start by truly educating yourself on what that looks like in a loved one or what that looks like in yourself. And I'll say this, Google's your best friend. I started a massive you know, international movement by Googling how to write a press release. And so start to do that research, start to give yourself that knowledge, and then find those resources, find ways to have conversations with people that come from a place of love and compassion, not judgment, just acknowledgement of what you've observed, and then be ready to hand off those, those resources to folks so that they can continue to do that journey themselves. Check in with them, you know, see how it's going, offer as much support as you can. Ultimately, there's only so much that we can do, but we should do all of what we can do. And so I think coming to people with grace and sharing that you want to see them happy and healthy and also sharing your own lived experience, even if you've not had an eating disorder, being able to say, I know how hard it is when I see those diet ads. I know how hard it is when I see Vogue magazine and those folks don't look like me. And I know that that's made me sometimes make decisions that I find questionable and I regret. And so I just want you to know you're not alone. Helping people see they're not alone, helping people feel seen generally is is sometimes what sparks that hope that can ultimately lead to them taking a chance for themselves and, um, and working towards their own recovery. Last couple of rapid fire questions. Finish the following statement with your first thought. Could be a word, could be a sentence, could be a stream of consciousness, but let's, let's head in. Connection is. Power. Body image is. Uh, Obsolete. Diet culture is. Evil. (laughs) Yes. And recovery is. Possible. And how can all the listeners stay in touch with you? I'm on the internet. Um, go to benokeefe.com and find the link to all of my hot takes and internet rantings. And I really hope to, to, to see you on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, so we can continue to be in community. Never hesitate to drop me a DM, um, even if you just need someone to tell you it's going to be okay. This has been such a joy as I expected. It's always such a joy to talk to you. I could always do it for many more hours. You are such a light and an inspiration in our world and making just an incredible difference one life at a time. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. 
Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.